that would be uh, what I would say is just once you've got people who are working with you, take good care of them and they're going to take good care of you. Um, that's It's a referral based business and that's how you build your business. They're driving along and the uh, buyer's talking to the agent and goes, so I'm just curious, I heard about this earnest money thing. What is that? Agent goes, well, you know, typically you put 1% down. It just, you know, guarantees that you're interested in the uh, house enough that the seller can feel comfortable taking it off the market. This person goes, oh, well, I don't have that. And the agent said, they go, <laughs> this is Reed Aiken, and you're listening to the Agents Archive podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Agents Archive podcast. Today, I'm excited to be joined with Reed Aitken out of San Antonio, Texas. He's a loan officer and originator down there in San Antonio, and he's been licensed and working in real estate lending since 2017, and his family's been involved in Texas real estate for decades now. Since getting into the business, he's helped more than 100 families get into homes. Reed works with agents to help qualify buyers to make sure they're ready and able to purchase a home. His loan consultation process lets him design a plan to fit the client and gives buyers and agents confidence in their ability to purchase a home. Being with a mortgage company and not a bank, he's able to use multiple banks products, which gives his clients countless options when looking for the best loan program. Reed, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? Oh, doing great. It's a little cold outside, but you know, that's uh, our Texas weather and I'm glad it's wrapping up today instead of what we had a year ago where it was pretty rough. Absolutely. For context, it is what one degrees, <laughs> one degree in Texas today. Yeah, Pretty rough. We're not built for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are not built for this, especially not our roads. So everyone up north's probably, probably laughing at us that we're freaking out over two inches of snow. But we're uh, high desert, whatever you want to call us, animals down here. Definitely not built for, built for those north winters. So Reed, how long have you been in the the real estate and lending industry? Yeah, actually, I kind of grew up around it. My uh, mom, uh, when we first moved from Houston to San Antonio back when I was four, she got her real estate license uh, while she was working with um, Chase Bank way back in the day. So she's had her license for forever, uh, then real quickly met some friends growing up, and their uh, father owns the Keller Williams down here in San Antonio. So been around it my whole life. Uh, dad, stepmom got into the business about maybe seven or eight years ago. So whole families involved, we're all tied up in real estate. So been around it for a long time. That's awesome. That's really cool to know. And knowing both your parents as well, y'all are definitely a real estate family in all aspects. Uh, what kind of led you to, to being in real estate? Was it sort of the family background in it that you went from college and it kind of was a, a natural progression into the, the industry for you? Yeah, actually, uh, when I first finished up with college, uh, got an accounting degree, was trying to figure out where I wanted to go with that. And at the time, thought I wanted to go be a tax lawyer and go to law school, get CPA license, go through all those fun things. And uh, when the program started going, I uh, wasn't uh, able to take me at the time. So I basically got told, hey, do a gap year and then come back and reapply. And had the family real estate thing. They told me, you know, hey, you should consider getting into this. And I didn't really want to work for family. I wanted to work with family. And so they said, hey, you know, we don't really have a lender. Um, why don't you look into that and see how you think about it? And honestly, I went in going, this is going to be a one-year gig. Then I'm going back to school, getting a law degree and found out real quickly that I loved it. What I loved a lot was uh, people buying houses, generally pretty happy. And people who are dealing with a tax lawyer, generally not so happy from the people I talked to. So 
you know, trading that, uh, trading that job and going, hey, I want to work with people who are in a good mood, excited every day versus people who are not in a good mood when you're calling an attorney to deal with taxes. Usually that's got some IRS pieces. So uh, that, that's really what got me started in all of it and the route that I took and where I ended up, uh, why I ended up where I am. Awesome. Yeah, I think you definitely ended up in, uh, in my opinion, at least a better spot than being an attorney. So oh, yeah. you get to deal with people in a, a much happier spot in their lives than, than when they're calling for a tax attorney, for sure. Oh, yeah. So for your job that you're in right now, what would you describe your, your day-to-day job? Like, what do you do for, for your position? Yeah, uh, actually, one of the things that this company, I'm with uh, Annie Mac, and one of the things they really push on is called a daily success plan. And that daily success plan irons out what we're supposed to do as our activities to make us, you know, the most successful in what we're doing. So on Mondays, they, uh, we go and talk to agents and we have our focus 40 list. We're talking to the agents on, Hey, what did you do over the weekend? Did you work or did you play? What can we help you with? Is there anyone we need to be talking to? Is there anything you need from offer standpoints, uh, following up, Hey, we wrote a contract on a house. You saw what happened with that. It's just getting our week planned out that way while we've got the bank and everything open, we can get everything lined up and know where we need to be headed for the week. On a Tuesdays, we do our, uh, our in process people. So anybody who's under contract, we touch the lead, make sure that they're all good working on whatever we need from them. And then we call both the listing agent and the buyer's agent, make sure everybody's updated on the same page. Is there an amendment or anything we didn't know about that we need to get just so everything can keep tracking along real smoothly. Wednesdays, we touch our past clients. Uh, We do two last name or two letters of the alphabet a week. So A and B, and that gives us a chance to touch them two times throughout the year. And that's generally about as many as we need to on some of those past clients. Uh, What's great about that is you know, especially right now, housing market did incredible this last year, continuing to do really well. And people go, oh, actually, I am thinking about doing this. And we're able to call that agent and say, hey, did you know so-and-so has a friend, a family member, coworker, or actually they're thinking about doing something? And it just allows us to get that person back with that agent in case that follow-up, uh, you know, isn't always being met there because it's hard. That follow-up system is one of those key things. And it, uh, it really takes getting used to that system. And then uh, Thursday, we do anybody who's looking because usually they're getting ready and geared up for Friday, Saturday, Sunday to go out and see what's available. And right now, that's a that's a whole different market than it's been over the last five, six years. But, you know, getting geared up and ready to go and see what they can find. So being a, a loan officer and loan originator, what does that mean? So I know when I was a new agent, I heard just lender broadly used for all all of the different positions at a bank. So if you worked at a bank, I was told that, oh, hey, that's a lender. So, you know, from the clerk to the teller to the loan officer originator to the SVP, like everyone was a lender in my eyes. And I didn't know what the different roles were. So for new agents who might not have even done their first deal yet, what does a loan officer, loan originator do? Yeah. So the really interesting one is a you know, mortgage banker, mortgage broker. So just to get real technical into what we do for our licensing, that's the distinction we have to know. And it's actually kind of backwards. You would think a mortgage banker would be the person who works for, you know, an actual bank and they're solely tied to that bank. And the broker would be kind of like a real estate agent where they work for a brokerage. They can offer a whole bunch of different things because of that brokerage, but we're backwards. So the mortgage broker is the person who works directly with that bank and only offers that bank's products. And the mortgage banker 
somebody who can broker a whole bunch of different products. So no, never understood why they haven't just gone and switched that. It would be so easy to do, but uh, it's, it's one of those trick questions for our licensing. But on the, uh, you know, the question of lender, LO, uh, loan originator, loan officer, all those things, honestly, it's the same thing. Uh, there really isn't much of a difference there on the title. It's kind of just how you want to call. Um, I got told, I know initially when I first joined, you're a loan originator. And I got, you know, that's great. And I remember talking to an agent who went, well, I only work with senior loan originators or senior loan officers. And so I went to my manager and said, how do I become a senior loan officer? Because, you know, that's the only way this guy's willing to even sit down and work with me. And he goes, well, you have to make it two years in the business. So I've been uh, doing this now a little bit over five, almost six years. So I guess I'm a senior loan officer at this point. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's really no difference. Uh, the lender is who you're talking to, who's helping you get the deal done from a bank. Uh, what, you know, that may or may not be is, hey, you call into this number, you talk to different people from some of these companies that are a bit more individualized, you call that direct person. And I really like the direct person route because every time you call, your buyers call, they're getting the same person. They know what's going on. Saves you time, saves them time, and sometimes headache. And uh, generally, they're not paid a salary. They're paid when something closes. So they care about it just as much as you do because that's where their money comes from. They're motivated to get the deal done. And that's something that's Definitely. important for new agents to understand too is, hey, these folks, they're not making money if you're not making money on these deals either. So they're just as, as hungry as you are to get these closed. So what, what would you say your role is in the transaction? Are you working with title companies? Are you working just with agents, just with home buyers, sellers? Where, where does your role fit in uh, for a new agent to, to kind of see that perspective of the puzzle? Yeah, depending on the uh, team and all and how that goes, there's there's different uh, there's different setups and all that. One of the ways that we do it here and how my team is set up is I handle the client interaction and the agent interaction. So at the very beginning, the agent or if, uh, you know, however it starts, usually it's an agent who calls and says, hey, I've got uh, Mary Smith who wants to talk to you about buying a house. Great. We call Mary Smith. We have that conversation. We figure out what she can and can't do. Uh, make sure it fits within the goals that they have. We call the agent and say, hey, Mary Smith is good to whatever dollar amount. And from there, like I said, we have that weekly process to follow up, make sure that, that you know, we're on top of anything that way. As soon as Mary Smith's ready to go, uh, she's getting you know, the contract written, we've got her documents and it's ready to start going through the process. From there, it uh, has its process with our processors, underwriters who do everything to approve the loan. And then we get with title, make sure that we have all of clear title documents and that everything's ready to go to closing. So with the lenders, kind of jokingly like to say, we're the money. So everything almost has to flow to us. We, we have our hands in uh, just about every single process. I think A&M came out with a study a while back saying there are 52 people involved on an average real estate transaction. And I know from the lending side alone, that's about 14 of them. <laughs> Title's probably got, you know, another three or four agents or a couple and the buyers. So we're a majority of those people who are involved in the transaction, just in the lending process. And then the people that we're touching as we're going through that process. Super helpful read. So that kind of takes me to the next question. When I was a new agent, 
I never really knew when I was bothering my clients lenders or when I was supposed to be sending them something. So my first few deals as a new agent, I was kind of afraid to ask my broker and some of the senior agents at the office because I didn't want to look like I had no clue what I was doing. But looking back, obviously, as a new agent, if you don't know what you're doing, always ask. There's going to be people who are more than happy to help you. But personally, I didn't know what I was supposed to send to, to, to lenders. So if I was working with you on a deal, which I have, I didn't know when I was supposed to send you a document or what documents to send you or when to reach out. So from your, your point of view, when should agents be reaching out? Say if they're working with a buyer client, at what point do they contact you? And throughout the process, what do they need to send to you for the transaction to go smoothly? Sure. Well, I actually got a pretty fun little story for that one. And it's fun looking back on it in hindsight, but uh, we, we had one that we were doing one time with an uh, agent I was working with down here in San Antonio. And they got in the car and they were driving outside of San Antonio by about an hour, hour and a half to go look at this house. They're driving along and the uh, buyer's talking to the agent and goes, so I'm just curious, I heard about this earnest money thing. What is that? Agent goes, well, you know, typically you put 1% down. It just, you know, guarantees that you're interested in the uh, house enough that the seller can feel comfortable taking it off the market. This person goes, oh, well, I don't have that. <laughs> and the agent said, they go, <laughs> you go, well, you know, you're going to need a down payment and that's at least 5%. They went, well, we don't have that kind of money. And I like to tell that story because as an agent, where do you want to start? Well, you know, you're out there talking to people, you're trying to grow the business, meet people, and you're excited. You want to start showing them houses because that's where the money's at. And you want to be working on all that. Well, before you even put that person in your car, start showing them all these houses, you want to make sure that they can actually do what they're looking to do. You want that confidence. And at the same point, especially now with inventory the way it is, that seller is going to need that confidence and they're usually going to ask for a prequal letter. So that's usually where I advise just start from there is, hey, we, we met Ms. Smith, uh, Mrs. Smith, give Reed a call. Let's find out what we're shopping for before we even get started. Because I've had people call me before and say, you know, I'm interested in buying a house at this price point. Great. You know, your payment's going to be this oh, well, actually, you know, we thought we were going to spend more than that. So let's bump our price point up. Or the dreaded one is the other way around where they go, oh, actually, we can't, we don't want to do that, or we can't do that. We need to be uh, lower down and kind of ground those expectations because it's real easy to show somebody a $300,000 house and they say, hey, let's actually buy 350. It hurts a lot when you show them a 350 and it's, well, actually, we can only buy 300 because that's a bedroom, you know, bathroom upgrade, kitchen upgrade. So a lot easier to go up and set those expectations early. So I, I just always advise, you know, you start there so that you're not driving an hour out of town and you find out that person can't, uh, can't actually buy what they're looking to buy. It's so important too. I know as a new agent, I, I would personally, I didn't want to hurt people's feelings. I didn't want them to, to think I didn't want to show them properties or anything like that, but your time is one of your most valuable, if not your most valuable asset that you have. You can't make more of it. And you can't make more of their time. So if you're showing them houses that they can't buy, you're not only wasting your own time, but you're also wasting theirs. And that's a, that's a pretty crummy feeling when you get someone hyped up about a few houses and they fall in love with them. Then they finally go speak to a lender and find out, you know, their price range and budget is, is half of what the houses they like cost. So getting them connected with a lender, in my opinion, before you even open the first door 
is super important in setting those expectations up before before any are um, laid out there. So in my opinion, I think that's part of the qualification process to even working with someone. So, you know, getting your buyer's rep signed with them, getting their, their criteria, finding out if they're working with the lender. And if the answer is no, finding someone like yourself, like you have in the database, if they're not already working with someone saying, hey, let me give you the contact info for X, Y, and Z lenders. You feel free to reach out to any, recommend all of them, speak with them about your situation, and they're going to help you really narrow down what you can afford and what you'll be comfortable with. Because like you said, some people are looking based on uh, bedrooms, bathrooms, or total price tag. Some people are like, okay, hey, yeah, I don't want to spend more than 2,500 bucks a month on my mortgage payment. Um, oh, yeah. And they're looking at houses that are significantly more than that. More realistically, what I see a lot of is people who are looking in the, you know, $1,500 to $3,000 monthly payment, and they have decent cash flow, but they have no credit. Um, or they have lots of debt that prevent them from qualifying for loans and the price range that they're hoping to be in and that they think they can qualify in just based on their income. So once you have someone that comes to you, uh, say you have a client or say you have a, an agent call you and say, hey, Reed, just got off the phone with buyer Amy Green, random name. Uh, sure. They're going to be calling you. Let me know how that goes. What happens next from the time you get off that call and you get a call from a, a prospective buyer? Yeah, so that person calls, uh, you know, once we do that conversation, typically takes about an hour to put everything together, at least from my side. And that's pretty typical in the industry. Um, if they're self-employed, that can be longer. So that one is always one just, uh, you know, for you guys, as you're getting started, I'd always kind of look at the real estate agent as you're like a coach and you're putting in your players as you need them. And so for, Hey, we're talking to somebody they're looking to buy. Great. I need to get that lender. Hey, we're talking to somebody need to sell. Well, then here's title companies, things like that. So right away, you know where you want to start sending and what plays essentially you're running based on what type of person you're talking to, what they're looking to do. And kind of the same thing on our side, we start by asking qualifying questions and just figure out uh, where they're looking for, what their goals are, and more of a consultation than just, okay, you know, give me a number arbitrarily because there's a hundred systems out there. You can go and plug your information in and it'll spit out a, hey, you're qualified for whatever dollar amount you put in. But is that what you want? Is that what you're aiming for in the purchase? Not always the case. So that that's one advocation for why talking to an actual person is always pretty nice, especially when you're making the biggest purchase you'll probably ever make in your life, in most cases. So, uh, you know, from how that process works on our side is we have a pretty, uh, pretty well-developed touch the lead, touch the partner. And so if we talk to your buyer, uh, we need to give the agent a call and we need to get them updated. I would definitely, you know, advise anybody who's talking to their lenders kind of establish that groundwork. So you, I, I kind of skipped over your question a little bit ago on, hey, I don't want to be too, uh, too annoying to the lender. You're never going to annoy the lender. We love hearing from you guys because that's where our work comes from. So, you know, we're the same as you guys. We want to be busy. We want to be working on things. So anytime you have a question, it's always great to give a call and say, hey, you know, just want to be updated on this. Is there anything that, you know, uh, you need from me on it? And that should be happening from our side more so than needing to get it from the agent. But uh, 
that's why we've got that process in place that we reach out and make sure that we're keeping in touch with everybody so that everyone's on the same page, everyone's comfortable, feels good to go and establish that confidence. Um, and, you know, just that whole piece of, as we're going through, we talk to the person, we make sure that we understand what they're looking to do. We make sure the agent understands so that, you know, especially right now, people are writing offers on the hood of cars some days that everyone's on the same page of, you know, hey, for this house that we're looking at, maybe we can go to 312, but 313 suddenly is too much. And that $1,000, while it may seem very insignificant, if it means we can't qualify, uh, you know, it's a whole wasted effort, even if we can get that home under contract, which can be a big deal. So what information would you say you're gathering from potential buyers when they do call you? Is it are you just running a credit check on them? Are you getting information about their job, their history, anything like that? Or what all, what all do they need to provide with you to get an idea of what they can afford? Yeah. So we're asking essentially uh, four categories of questions. We want to know about their income. So uh, where do you work? Who do you work for? What do you do? How much are you making when you do that? Uh, spouse or other person involved in the party, if they are also going to be a part of this, what it's their same uh, answers to those. We ask about their debt, so car payments, student loans, credit cards, uh, personal loans, anything like that, other homes that you may have. And then we ask about uh, when you're buying this house, how are you planning on purchasing it? Is that money coming from a bank account? Are we selling something? Because all of these answers are going to point us to, is there anything that we need to be prepared for? So I uh, had somebody just recently who sold cryptocurrency stock and found out that cryptocurrency, even when you sell it and turn it into money in your bank account, can't be used as funds for closing. I don't know. Yeah, crazy, right? So that's new that to me. Was a, yeah, that was a real big deal. We just found out about it on a deal because it wasn't a common thing that we came across. So, you know, there's all kinds of these little things on there that, you know, I said, you guys are the coach. You may not necessarily be the expert on everything mortgage, but you know, hey, I'm going to go put in my quarterback because I know that they're my expert when it comes to running this play and throwing the ball. So that's kind of how I view it as. Uh, and then the other piece we're asking about is credit. Like you touched on earlier, that's a really big driving factor and all that. And those four questions can point us to, hey, this person, you know, is looking pretty good. Let's go ahead and get an application in. Let's get them a prequal letter generated. That way they can start shopping or, hey, we have a hard stop here. Uh, this person's selling cryptocurrency, which we now know can be an issue, or, hey, this person's only been working in this job a month or two, so we actually need a little bit more time to prove income. Uh, this person's credit score needs some work, and because they just told us, hey, we have credit cards maxed out on five or six of them, so all of these things will tie into, hey, are we where we need to be, or is there something we need to maybe work on first to get us into a position to be a stronger offer? Great. That's super helpful. So I don't know if this is too specific. You let me know, but from a, a 10,000 foot view, what are a few of those things that lenders are looking for that agents could potentially um, have an idea beforehand? So if they know their client just started a job last week, uh, that's probably no go. How long are banks looking for someone to be at a job before they can use that income to qualify? Uh, what's kind of a ballpark credit score that that lenders might be looking for, things like that, that might come up um, when working with a buyer that a, an agent could give a, a lender a heads up on or vice versa? Yeah, so 
kind of doing your own little mini prequal before sending them off for the lender prequal can be helpful. Uh, where I would always start is, hey, let's talk about what it is that you're looking to do. So, well, what does that mean? Well, what price point are you looking at? Well, we've been looking online and we saw some homes we like at 200,000. Awesome. You know, 200,000. Um, have you talked to anybody about doing that and getting qualified? Yes, great. What did they tell you? You already have your answer there. If it's no, we haven't talked to anybody, well then awesome. Let's talk to this person. By the way, when they talk to you, they're gonna ask you a few questions. They're gonna ask you about your income. They're gonna ask you about your debts, where the money for the down payment's coming from and your credit. Is that all something that you're able to discuss with them? Sure. And generally in there, that at least breaks the ground a little bit to asking some of those questions. And a lot of times people will offer that information when you go, you know, so they're gonna ask you about where you're working. Oh, well, we've been working at, you know, Johnson & Johnson for 20 years. Awesome, you know, that's great news to hear that. Oh, well, we actually just started, we just moved here, so we're just starting this new job. Okay, well, you know, they're gonna need some details on what you do, how that pay structure works. Um, we run a family business and we just started it up. We just quit our jobs and we're now doing this. So, you know, all those things, they're good to know about. Um, not anything you need to dive too deeply in, but sometimes setting those expectations for people can make them feel a little bit more comfortable going into that process because everybody has a little bit of a, you know, when you're talking to a realtor, it's all really fun and, hey, we love the place. We can see our kids growing up here. You know, we can see having the pool and the barbecue and we're going to be the cool family. Everyone wants to hang out in our backyard in the summers. The bank, we, we don't get necessarily that same that same view. It's a, oh man, I got to talk to these people and they're going to want to dig into my financials and all that. And so giving them a little bit of how that structure is going to go can give some confidence and, hey, look, they're going to ask you about your income. What do you do for work? Oh, you work somewhere? Awesome. Cool. How long have you been there? A couple of years? Perfect. We should be, you know, that's generally what they're looking for. So it's about a two-year history is what we need to show. Uh, where that can get a little bit dicey is with self-employed or commission type things because they go up and down. So that generally be, be about the limit I would take it to for an agent to ask those questions. And it certainly helps because if they're self-employed, um, you know, we're going to need to ask for tax returns. So talking to that person saying, hey, you know, just be prepared. You might need to have your tax returns available. Uh, I actually had somebody one time who told them that they were self-employed truck driver he went, well, I've never filed a tax return in my life. And well, got some bad news for you. We're probably not buying a house because the second we do, IRS is going to come down on you like a hammer. So, you know, I have an address to find you at. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right now they can't find you. So uh, stuff like that, you know, you don't need to get too deep into it, but very basic would just say, hey, you know, to buy a house, you need to have a job. Do you have a job? Great. Are you self-employed? you know, would prepare to have a couple of years tax returns because they're probably going to ask you for it. On I always the, advise new agents, especially to tread carefully when asking questions, because there's certain things that we obviously can't ask um, due to just our job description and what we're able to do as licensees. Uh, and it's different state by state, but generally I don't advise digging into people's financials off the bat but if they say, hey, I'm about to speak with this lender, what do I need to have ready? I'll, I'll tell them. I'll say, hey, uh, be sure you're ready to, to let them know if you're self-employed, where you've been working, how long you've been working there. They might ask for tax returns, bank statements, and they'll probably have you fill out an application, almost definitely. 
Uh, and I'm not, I'm trying specifically not to dig into asking how much they make per year or anything like that, because I don't want to cross any boundaries that could potentially get me in trouble in my state. And I think everyone should be cautious of those in their state. And the safe route is to let them know what they'll need likely and hand them off to, to folks like you who that's their job to, to ask those questions and things like that. Does that, Oh yeah, love would it. you agree that's, with that? That's perfect. So, okay. you know, you don't need to ask for a copy of it just to prepare them for what they may need. And, you know, if that's outside of what you want to do on all that, you don't need to do any of those things. Really, I would just confirm, do you have a job? Because if you have some level of work and you're earning income, that's step one. Because if we don't have that, we're not going anywhere. Uh, retired in Social Security, by the way, does count as a job. So you don't technically need a job. You just need some source of income that's coming in. So once they do get to you and they fill out their application and it looks good to go to you, what is the difference between being pre-qualified and having a pre-qual and being approved for a loan? Because I get that question a lot and I know a lot of new agents ask that as well. Yeah. So pre-qualified is, um, Matt, you know, what do you do? You're a real estate agent. That's awesome. How much are you making? X amount. Perfect. You know, you're killing it. Way to go. Uh, what are your bills that you pay rate, you know, you got a car, you got a couple student loans, you got a credit card that you use pay off really good deal there. Uh, money's in a bank. Perfect. You know, it's all, it's not in crypto. So we're in good shape there. Uh, are you okay with us pulling your credit? You say yes. Perfect. So I have a credit score verbal on uh, how much you make and verbal on how much you have in the bank. You are pre-qualified based on that information. So I've checked your credit. I know generally how much you make and that I can use the income. And I know that you have money to do a down payment. The flip side of that is that pre-approval process. And that is, hey, I've verified, I've gotten your pay stub. So I've seen you make the amount of money that you said you're making. Uh, sometimes we even do a verification of employment and we make sure from that side that, hey, you know, we matched the income. So it's fully verified. We know how much you're making. We can qualify you with that. Assets. I've seen the bank statements. I see that you didn't just borrow $50,000 on a personal line of credit to be able to buy this house. I know where the money came from. I know I can use it. So things like that. I know you didn't just go to Vegas and, you know, hit a, hit a big win at the table. And that's where all your money came from. So it's just that piece is pre-qualified is we've talked about it, pre-approved is we've verified it. Makes sense. And once they have that pre-qual letter, how long is that good for? Uh, it's good through the credit report. So credit report is good for 90 days, which gives us in, you know, typical standard fashion, we call it about 120 days. So four months to get under contract and close on the home. And the big concern a lot of people have is, oh no, well, if I don't meet that time frame and they got to pull my credit again. Is that going to hit me again? Am I going to start losing points like crazy? And one thing that's great, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, offering multiple people to talk to and uh, giving suggestions that, hey, you know, you may have talked to someone. Uh, here's some other people that you might want to consider or you haven't talked to anyone. Here's my list of people I prefer working with. When you do a credit pull, you actually open up a credit window. And so you've got 30 uh, on some estimates, it's 30. On some, it's 45. So I always say 30 days or one month to talk to as many people as you want. So as long as you're talking to the same person about a same mortgage credit pool, you could talk to 100 lenders and it would only ding you the one time. 
I definitely and all the other go. lenders see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So everyone sees that you have an inquiry, but you only get hit for the points one time. So, you know, when real estate agents, when you guys are offering, hey, here's three people to talk to. Uh, that's one thing that is helpful to know is, look, you have a credit window when you do this. Just because you pulled credit with one person, you're not you know, married to them. You're not stuck with them if you don't like what they offer. You have a 30-day window. You can talk to multiple people. I wouldn't go overboard because everyone's going to ask, hey, why did you talk to this person, this person, this person? But you know, giving three options, letting them pick between those three for the best fit for them, definitely not a bad idea there. And it doesn't penalize them to do so. Uh, same deal on that initial poll after 90 days, you get those points back. So that credit report being good for 120, if we do end up going past that point and have to update credit, it basically is we get the points back and then we go right back down again by looking at that poll. And uh, the last one that I always thought was real interesting is the estimate on those points is about zero to four. So it's not making it to where we don't qualify, uh, you know, those zero to four points. It's not going to be the make or break on just that transition there. That makes sense. That's super helpful to know too, because I know a lot of folks, especially new buyers who've never done it before, are very hesitant to to even speak with lenders because they think once they have that conversation, the lender is just going to go pull their credit without even asking them for permission or to sign anything. Um, so you said that lenders can see which other lenders have looked during that credit window being open, correct? Yes. So at what point would you say it becomes detrimental to the the buyer is that after they've spoken to to five lenders 10 lenders 25 lenders and they can they can all see which banks they've spoken to so everyone uh what you see on the credit report is you actually see who they pulled credit with um if you're somebody big like a chase wells fargo that usually will say chase wells fargo if you're um kind of a, my own company, what we use is a company called Universal Credit. So when I pull, it doesn't show up saying Annie Mac Home Mortgage, it shows up saying Universal Credit. So, uh, you know, what they may see is just that there was an inquiry. And what we have to do from our side is we have to ask, hey, we see you had a credit pull on this date. What was that for? And so it, it doesn't actually cause any detrimental harm to the process for them to talk to different people, have their credit pulled multiple times. Uh, where it would be detrimental is, hey, we just got told we can buy a house. And we had this one happen where somebody got told they could buy a house. So they bought a house, a car, a boat, uh, furniture, and opened up a credit card. And I mean, just about everything. Well, each of those individually are different types of credit pulls. So you can pull credit in that 30-day window as long as it's all mortgage credit pulls. The second it starts becoming car, boat, all those other things, that's, uh, that's where it starts to ding you each time and it can really drop the score fast. So that one is detrimental, but talking to multiple lenders, all you really have to do is that buyer in the process will have to explain why they have additional credit pulls. And the reason why we're doing that is we wanna make sure uh, they're not buying two houses at the same time to avoid not qualifying for buying two houses at the same time, which was a big deal back in the mortgage crisis in the early 2000s. Yeah, that's smart. That's that's probably a good idea because, I mean, every agent will see at some point, they'll be three days out from closing and someone's like, well, I, I mean, I qualified for this house. So we went out and bought this new jet ski boat or like uh, wake surfing boat, you know, or 
yeah, we just went and put on uh, all of the new furniture for the house on layaway on closing day, had that one time and got to the closing table. And there were lots of tears because they didn't realize they, they couldn't go put that on there three hours, four hours before closing. And it would still, still show up. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we bought a, we had somebody buy a boat because they had a big garage now and they needed to put something in it. And then we had a boat, and no garage. So, you know, it, it can end up being something real, uh, real impactful to the deal when those kind of things happen. Yeah, that's not good. And that's, that's where a lot of this stuff comes in and, and educating the clients too. that that's Definitely. all of our jobs is making sure they know like, hey, don't do stupid stuff. Like don't go out and do this and, and screw this up. You're so close to the finish line. Just oh, yeah. don't do these three things. So once you you've pre-qualified someone, they're good to go. They're looking at homes. What's the next step in the process for a new agent? Do they need to, to let you know they're looking at homes or uh, is the next step to, to let you know, hey, it looks like, let's say my client Marcy uh, has found a house that she likes. We're submitting an offer today. If it goes through and gets accepted, I'll send that your way. Do you prefer that or do you prefer uh, and should agents wait until it's under contract then just send you a contract? And we're in the fun times as soon as we hit that pre-qualify, everything looks good. That's that's the good times. We get to call and say, hey, great news. You know, Mr. Uh, Marcy, I guess we'll start with uh, Marcy and say, Marcy, great news. You know, you're good to go for what you're looking to do. So excited to be working with you. Hey, here's the list of paperwork I need you to be working on getting for me. That way, as soon as you're under contract, we hit the ground running. And Marcy's excited. You know, we call the agent, say, hey, great news. Marcy's an excellent client. Uh, we're good. She's looking at 300, we could go to 350 if we needed to. So everybody's on the same page. We're all updated. We know what we can and can't do. Um, you know, so that's that's the good times. And from there, client goes out, they start shopping. What I typically like and what I've told my agents that I work with is, hey, the second we've got a verbal agreement, when you send that contract out for signatures, send me a copy of it. As long as, you know, everybody's agreed to what it's going to be. Because I've had sellers who drag their feet on signing things. You know, sometimes they get excited too as, hey, we sold the house and so now we're going on a trip. And, you know, we don't want to lose that time because, you know, your contract is uh, 30 days. We lose a week. That's a quarter of our time that's gone. And that's a lot to make up in the initial time of getting all this started. So as soon as we've got a contract that's available to get a copy of, I want that copy. I want to be able to get everything rolling, get stuff out the door. That way we've got our process well underway as we're getting everything going. Um, you know, we know if there's any hiccups that are going to happen within the first couple of days of working on it while you're still in the option period, instead of being outside of option. And now we're getting the contract. So I would say the second you've got a contract, get in touch with that lender. Uh, hopefully they've been in touch with you throughout the whole process and been checking in and making sure, hey, you know, is there anything you need from me? Do you need me to update the letter? Do you need me to tailor it to a house? Um, and that's generally when we kind of know uh, Marcy's going out shopping on Friday. Cool. She's looking at these three houses. Hey, let me draw you up three letters real fast, just so you have them in case they decide to go for any of those. And if we get it accepted, that's our Monday morning call of hey, Matt, anything happened over the weekend that I need to know about? Well, actually, Marcy went under contract, you know, so that's that's part of our process. Uh, it may be a little bit different, but lenders never going to be unhappy if you call them and say, by the way, over the weekend, we ended up under contract. So, you know, they want to hear from it the second it happens. Uh, as soon as you've got one, send it their way so they can start working on it and really get that process moving. 
Super important. And you touched on it very briefly, but I want to bring it back up and dive in a little bit more if it's cool with you. So you mentioned tailoring those prequal letters to the houses that they're interested in. So in markets where it's super competitive, like it is right now for buyers, where houses are, at least in our markets, getting sometimes 30, 40 offers on them. Would you say it's a good idea to to go in and, and maybe take their prequal number closer to what they're offering? Because um, at least in my experience, what I've seen is say you're offering on a, a house that's listed at 250, but the buyers are realistically prequal up to like 500. If you go in there and submit your offer with, hey, we're prequal up to 500, but here's our offer of 235, 15K under asking, those sellers are going to be like, well, they, I mean, they can afford 500. So let's, let's counter at 275. Would you say it's, it's better in a wise idea in markets like this that are super strong for sellers to, to say, Hey, let's, let's go ahead and send these out um, or reach out to the lender and have them draft these for these offering prices. Do you go for the offering price or close to it? Or what's your take on that? I'm just curious personally. I would say personally to do it even strong or a weak environment, because in a weak environment where there's a whole lot of sellers, which, um, you know, we haven't been in that in quite some time, but we were in a weaker than the craziness we're in right now in the feeding frenzy uh, when I first started. And even then, the advice I got first getting into all this is write the letter for what we're going to put on the contract. Uh, Like you said, you know, the seller is going to look at that and go, well, if they can go over why not, why not counter with over because I know they can do it. In this case, we, we don't want to show all of our cards. We want to make sure we're presenting the offer that we're able to do. Um, I like matching to the contract that way when we'll uh, sometimes do phone calls to the listing agents just to say, yeah, you know, that is exactly what we're looking to do. Uh, especially right now, somebody who's qualified up to 500, maybe they have additional cash in case that appraisal doesn't meet value. And that can be huge in some of our things too, where we can use some of that additional cash to qualify. Well, if we show all of our cards and, you know, we lay it out with, hey, we can go so much higher, they're going to push us higher. So we, we want to offer what we can. Uh, we want to try and negotiate with the best interests and being where that buyer wants the home to be. Because at the end of the day, they're going to ask us for advice and they're going to ask me for, Hey, do the numbers fit and what I'm hoping for them to be. And I'll give advice there. You'll give advice on the home makes sense at this price point, but uh, does it fit in what their plan is with the home and does it fit for their goals? And they're going to make that decision at the end of the day, because they need to be comfortable with that payment, with that price, with all the aspects that come from whatever that number is on that piece of paper as that, you know, we'll write it for whatever we need to, Agent, you know, you'll write it for whatever we need to to try and win it. But that buyer is the one who, at the end of the day, is going to be living in that house, and we want them to be happy and comfortable with what they choose to do there. And that goes into something else that I think is super important uh, as part of our jobs and part of working with people who are, like you said earlier, making very likely the largest financial decision and purchase of their lives. And a lot of people ask, "Hey, is this house worth it?" And in markets like this, any market really, a house is worth what you're willing to pay for it. Now, will it appraise? That might be a different story. But if this is the house for you and it's the only house that you've seen that you that you like and that you can see your kids growing up in, it's worth what you're willing to pay for it. And that might be more than what it appraises for. 
And so if that comes down to you having to, to bridge that gap and, and bring cash to closing, that might be the case. But on the flip side, I think it's important for, for your clients to be educated and know that, hey, it's very easy to get emotionally involved in transaction and just keep going with these counters until suddenly you're, you know, you're 25K over asking on a house or even more sometimes on a house that you're not in love with. And it's because there's people who are in love with it, who are pushing that price up and up and you're just playing into that emotional game. So having a kind of a, a stable head on your shoulders to, to stay looking at the numbers and going like, okay, hey, once we get past this point, we're tapping out. We, we don't want to get to a point where we're paying X dollars over our monthly budget for our mortgage or at any amount over our monthly budget for the mortgage. Um, once you go into contract and your buyers are super pumped, they're in the option period, due diligence, whatever it's called in your market and state could be different, but the period of time at the beginning of the contract where you have time to do inspections and you can terminate the contract with only losing a a uh, small amount of, of money that you pay up front in addition to the earnest money. Um, who's ordering the inspections typically and who's ordering the appraisals? So in my market, it's the buyer is responsible for ordering the inspection and reviewing the inspection with their agent. Um, and it's the lenders that are ordering those appraisals. So what would you say is the, the general consensus for that and who's doing each of those things for an agent who might not have ever done a deal before. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier that you're the coach and so you have your team and all that part of that buyer team, but a separate person altogether is that inspector. So, you know, uh, as soon as we know that there's a buy, we're calling the lender or whoever they're working with. And, you know, even if it's not your preferred lender, I would 100% suggest that you as the agent get on the phone, have a conversation with them, make sure that, you know, they have direct access to you. That way you guys can be on the same page, get updates, uh, set that groundwork, especially as you kind of get a feel for how you like things, tell them. Um, they, they will appreciate that. They will be able to meet those accommodations in most cases of hey, I really like knowing what's going on. So once a week, can you give me a call and just tell me where we're at in the process? Uh, from that buyer inspection side, that, in, at least for Texas, is 100% on the agent and the buyer to make sure that they do that if they choose to do it. Uh, definitely recommend those home inspections. But uh, from the home inspection piece on the lending side, I don't want that report. Because the issue is if that report accidentally sneaks its way down the process and makes it in front of an underwriter, because I have a licensed professional who said there are these issues with the home, everything on that report has to be fixed. And that can be things as little as, hey, there's a piece of chip paint on the wall, and now we have to repaint that wall uh, all the way down to this is a 20-year-old water heater, so you should probably replace the water heater. Does it mean it's not working? No. It's just older, but if it makes it to an underwriter because a licensed professional marked it as something going on, it's got to be fixed. So from the inspection side, have an inspector that, you know, they're your team player. You call, they can walk their uh, buyer through the process, make sure they understand what's a big deal, what's minor things, but still something they need to be aware of and have that conversation with them. But uh, make sure from your side, that stays between you and the buyer. That's not something that ever goes to the lender. Uh, I don't want it because I don't want you guys to have to deal with a laundry list of items to try and get a house ready to go. But, uh, 
Yeah, so that whole process with getting the contract right away is so that we can get that appraisal ordered. I know um, right back in the last year, two years with all the craziness, appraisals got up to a point of taking almost three weeks, which is not typical. They're typically about a 10 to 14 day turn time to get them. And the VA uh, with veterans and all that for uh, their appraisals was way worse. Um, I had one that took 45 days to get a VA appraisal back. And that was the fastest that they could get out there to do it, which is a big deal because we wrote the contract for a 30 day close because that's the norm is we expected to be able to close in 30 days. Everyone was very understanding that they accepted a VA offer and that we'd need the appraisal before closing, but it, it can make a big impact. So that's why I would say the second you know you've got a deal, everyone's verbally agreed and going to sign, get that contract over, let's get that appraisal ordered uh, that next day usually with documents being signed by the buyer and let's get that going because that can, that can be the biggest piece that is outside of everyone's control on that appraiser getting out there to view the home. And that can make or break a deal sometimes, especially in a market like this. So if you're coming as a buyer with a VA or FHA, which are, um, they're perfectly fine, they're wonderful programs, but they're somewhat notorious for their extended appraisal periods um, versus a buyer who's maybe cash or conventional wanting to do a 30-day close. And they're working with a, a timeline of being able to get that appraisal in three weeks. Um, that can potentially make or break your deal or your offer getting accepted. So letting your lender know right away is, is critical because that can, that can keep you in the game, especially in, in seller's markets. Buyer's markets, it's a little bit less crazy and there's usually less of a, a backup in appraisals. I would imagine, I, I say this having never been in a buyer's market before. I mean, we're, we're on what, like year 13 of this cycle um, so like five years past the expected turn back to a, a buyer's market. So who knows, but uh, likely we, we will find out one day. Um, you mentioned underwriters and underwriters can also make or break a deal. Um, if they see things on an inspection from a licensed professional, they're the ones who are saying, all right, we're not going to fund this until this uh, peeling paint on the windowsill on this addition to the home is completely sanded down, replaced. And you know what, let's uh, get rid of that wood frame. You need to put a metal one in. So what are underwriters and what is underwriting? Yeah, actually you're talking about the peeling paint. I have a peeling paint right now on a shed in the backyard. And our uh, FHA guideline says that that paint has to be scraped off and repainted. And it's a shed in the backyard, has nothing to do with the house. Buyer fully intends to tear it down the second they move in, but it doesn't matter. So that's a appraisal guideline based on lender guidelines at the national level for FHA, VA. And it's the rules we have to play by. Uh, but, you know, as far as underwriting and uh, what's kind of going on there, that's a big reason why we go through that pre-qualification process is we ask those questions and why we want to usually go a step further and do the pre-approval. I want to see that they really are making that uh, amount of income. I wanna see that, hey, there's not any weird deductions on their paycheck because actually they had child support that they haven't paid in 10 years kind of thing. So, you know, all these things can pop up uh, once you start getting all the documents. So getting them early from a lending standpoint is a really good idea. and from the agent's standpoint, just to encourage that, hey, your lender's gonna ask you for things, uh, be on top of that. Make sure that you get them those documents that way. 
you know, an ounce of prevention is something that uh, my family says in this, they say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So doing a little bit of work up front and knowing, hey, we have this thing that's going to pop up and we know it before we even write a contract, we can get ahead of it. If we don't know about it until we're, you know, a week out of closing and we're trying to deal with it then, that's where everybody gets unhappy, upset. And from, you know, this, this business is a referral-based business. So we want your clients to be happy that way. They think of you the next time they're doing something when they're talking to people at work or talking to friends and family and go, man, I worked with Matt. I had the best experience and you should definitely consider using him for X, Y, Z that you're doing with your home. So that, uh, that to me is how you really handle the underwriting thing is be prepared early. Make sure that you have a lender who's committed to, hey, I want to get these documents early. I don't want to just take a verbal commitment on, I make $100,000 a year. Well, that's awesome. But how are you making that $100,000 a year? Uh, where's that money coming from? Well, it's actually 50% commission. And I had 200000 I made last year. And now I only made hundred. That's a big issue because we're declining in income pretty significantly. 100,000 sounds great, you know, when they're saying, hey, I'm making six figures, you go, oh, awesome. If you leave it just at that, and then you find out what's going on the years prior, it can seriously impact things. So I, that's my solution to how to deal with underwriting is, one, get the paperwork up front, uh, you know, make sure you have a lender who's committed to doing that. Almost everybody is doing things that way. So you're usually in very good hands. Uh, but you know, get the paperwork up front from the lending standpoint, make sure if you're having that conversation, you ask the lender, hey, what is your process when I send you somebody? And find out because they may say things that you go, oh, wow, you know, uh, should we maybe have a little bit more certainty when we're qualifying someone? And find out, uh, but typically everyone's gonna get the paperwork, everyone's gonna be pretty confident, we're gonna pull credit right away. So the underwriting standpoint is just making sure it fits in the guidelines and, uh, you know, if you have that conversation, that relationship with that lender, ask them, say, hey, you know, you told me we were good at 315 and you said 315 on the dot. What happens if we do 316? They may say, okay, you know, 316, we could probably make work. They may say, you know, we're tight at 315. Like 315 is already pushing 15 over where I want them to be, but, you know, I, I want to give them a shot to get into a home. So having that conversation to just find out it's going to make that process so much easier, um, making sure that that lender is going to get the documents beforehand, be as close to pre-approved uh, beforehand so that they know what's going on. You'll get through underwriting really smoothly every time. So underwriting is kind of like the compliance for the bank, making sure that everything, all the boxes are checked and, and nothing looks fishy, right? Yeah. So what, uh, what's really switched in our process is we use an automated underwriting system. And that's pretty much industry standard now where once we've got all the numbers and everything, we put it, we run it through and uh, we can sometimes get matches where it says, Hey, Matt, we've matched your social to your name with your company and we've already verified your income. So you're good. Uh, we've matched even, uh, have you had any appraisal waivers yet? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if there's going to be video to this, but I just got a little unhappy looking oh, yeah. face for Matt. So uh, appraisal waivers, it's, it's going to be the future. And what's coming with that is as we're getting more and more data into computers, what's going to end up happening is uh, they're going to be able to say, hey, this address based on all the data of homes that are around it that have sold that are like it, we can assess this value to the home 
without actually needing an appraisal. And that's, that's going to be huge. Well, that's part of that underwriting system that's through the computer is they can tell us, hey, income's good, assets are good, we verified them, and the home is good. If we can check those three boxes and we have a good credit report, I've actually had a loan where we went through and all the person had to do was show up and provide a driver's license and social. So it's about it it's, all. Oh yeah. It's the future. It's going to be awesome once it's, you know, fully running and all that. But in the meantime, uh, what happens is that underwriting system reads all the information and it gives us the guidelines and the underwriter is using that to approve the loan. So the computer spits out and says, Hey, we do need an appraisal. So underwriter will want to review an actual appraisal. Hey, we need to see two months bank statements. We need two months bank statements and I need one pay stub. Awesome. Well, then I know I just need one pay stub. So it gives us all that direction on what paperwork we need. That's what we submit to the underwriter. As long as everything looks good in that, we're going to be fine going through. Uh, where that gets a little crazy is like we talked about earlier, the self-employed stuff can get a little, a uh, little hairy sometimes on how people handle their personal tax returns. I think that's the future. Uh, when you said appraisal waivers, I thought you were talking about um, waiving the appraisal oh, yeah, on, yeah. <laughs> on the buyer side. So that's why I had the negative reaction. But what you're talking about sounds like it would actually make the process a whole lot smoother for, for qualifying folks. And now that you mentioned that automated process with linking your social to different addresses and stuff, that makes me think back to some loans that, that I've been a part of in the last two to, to six years. So further back, I remember every time I was, I was doing something or every few months, they would have to send out a, like a packet of stuff. I have to completely fill out all over again, my social driver's license number, past three addresses, uh, past two, three employers, all that stuff. Uh, but now they just send me a, a secure email that I, I log into and type in like dual verification, you know, do a pin. And um, then they just ask me, Hey, which of these addresses have you been associated with? Who of these people have you been members of an LLC with, where are these places have you worked? Which of these most closely matches your income for the last year, stuff like that. So I could definitely see, cause the process for that has sped up so significantly that uh, I think that's, like you said, that's the future. Um, once you get through underwriting and all that stuff is done in what I like to look for and what clients ask for is, hey, do we have the clear to close? When, when does the clear to close happen and what does that mean? Yeah, so clear to close is um, basically, hey, we've got everything we need to match the approval that the computer system gave us. We meet all the guidelines for the house. We've got the appraisal back. In most cases, we're still getting the physical ones. So we've got everything we need to have the underwriter sign off and say, this loan is approved. So that's the full approval process. We've got everything we need. We can check all the boxes. Everything's good to go. Title works back. Um, the seller has the right to sell the home. Uh, everybody's happy. All, and we're, we're you know, in the happy point where we can set up docs, be ready for closing and start scheduling that. So uh, that's the backside of that approval process. Typically what happens is when it gets to underwriting, you know, underwriting um, has to either get some updates, they have to ask some additional questions. Uh, a lot of times what I have is we got two bank statements, but it's been 30 days. So there's a new bank statement available. There's new pay stubs that have become available, uh, especially right now with where we are. W-2s just came out. Uh, they were due by January 31st. So now, instead of asking people for their 2020 W-2s, I have to get 2021, 2020, and 2019. 
because I need to make sure if they have got that W-2, I've got it, uh, or I need to be able to see those last two years. And then tax returns, we're going to have between now and really October when uh, the businesses file, potentially three years of tax returns we have to ask for, depending on what's available. And that's the same thing the underwriter's doing is you, they're asking, hey, is there something new available so that we have the most up-to-date file? Or is there a question that popped up? I, you know, I've talked about on a pay stub, we had somebody where they owed child support and they were getting it deducted out of their paycheck. So now we need to see, hey, how much is that child support actually? Are they paying the full amount? Are they paying a lesser amount? Um, you know, hey, we saw in the bank statement that you moved $50,000 from your savings account to your checking account, and we only have the checking account. Can we see the savings, see where that money came from? Uh, you know, if it's not mattress money that, oh yeah, we had 50,000 sitting under our bed and we put it in the bank to be able to make the purchase, or we went and got a loan to be able to make this happen. So uh, it's the person who's going through with a fine tooth comb, making sure that anything that uh, could cause any question of, hey, what's this about? That's what that step is in underwriting, just to make sure that when we sign off, that everything's good to go, that buyer's going to be fine. Uh, nothing's going to come down the road from them being in that house. And in general, it's a protection because we want to make sure that if they truly borrowed $50,000 to get into this house, well, who's going to come knocking on their door and say, give me the 50 grand or we want your home. So it's protections for um, our side because we are doing a loan of a pretty significant amount. It's protection for the buyer to make sure they truly qualify and that everything's good to go. And uh, once we've gotten all those green lights, we've got our clear to close and that's generally the celebration time. You know, everybody starts preparing for keys and thinking about scheduling movers and all that fun stuff. That's the, yeah, that's the most exciting time for most buyers, especially once they find out, hey, we got the clear to close. We can start telling people that we're moving. I always tell people until you have clear to close, don't be telling people your new address. Don't be like changing your address on your bank accounts and, and mailing stuff. Like wait until you have those keys in your hand really, yeah, wait till you have the keys in your hands and that money's cleared and has hit the seller's account. Um, we're, we're closing in on an hour, but I have a few more questions if you have some time. Um, one of them is in regards to contact. So in communication, everyone's a little bit different. Uh, some people prefer text, phone call, email, carrier pigeon. What do you prefer for um, contact with agents for updates throughout the process? Is there, is there a certain communication method that, that you seem to prefer for the business? Yeah. So, you know, um, if it's going to be something involving a document email, hundred uh, percent, that's the easiest way for us to get it, especially with attachments, things like that. If it's something, you know, quick of, Hey, just have a question, call or text is usually your best way of doing it. Um, and I, I personally, uh, with a lot of my agents, we generally will just shoot a text message because that's, uh, you know, who knows who's going to be on a phone call, who's out showing a house. So we'll shoot a text message back and forth of just, hey, are you free for a call in five, 10 minutes? And yeah, I'm good. So we'll do it that way to schedule the call. Um, but it's, it's up to you, uh, really, whatever works best for you in that relationship. And I would have that question when you're talking to people of, hey, what's the best way to reach you? I have an office phone. I don't actually know the office phone number off the top of my head because I don't use it. I don't give it out to people. I use my cell phone. It's where I am. And that's the best way of reaching me. Um, 
email, like I said, that's great when we're sending documents and things like that, or, hey, here's something that we're going to schedule, uh, you know, we'll, hey, here's the link to it in the email, and we'll, uh, we'll get to it, you know, once it's in a, once we're in office sitting down, but typically it's, I, I would say phone call and text message is your best way if you need a quick response from somebody. And nowadays, almost everyone's got everything on their phone. We can do prequal letters off of our phone. Almost everyone's doing that these days. So uh, just being able to do things like that, I would say call or text is your best bet. That's good. And I know from personally working with you, anytime I call or text you, if I can't get a hold of you on the phone, you'll usually text back right away, say, hey, in a meeting or on a call right now, I'll call you back as soon as I get out. Should be 20, 25 minutes. Or if I send you a text and it's just a simple update, you're you're right on it. And that's something that's different with every lender and every person you're going to work with as a new agent, especially. So I think it's important on your first contact with that person, say, hey, how do you prefer to communicate? Because, you know, there's some some people who've been in the industry for 30, 40 years and they're not too keen on texting. So they might only respond if you give them a call or shoot them an email. There's also a lot of people, especially in the, the younger generations who are more of the four hour work week kind of Tim Ferriss model of working who they're checking their email at 8 a.m. and again at like 6 p.m. So if you send them an email, you're not going to get a response until that night. So if it's something urgent, you need to holler at them. Uh, or go through whatever channels they have set up. So figuring that out as you're starting to work with someone is going to lead to a lot more uh, mutually beneficial relationship than say, if Reed's like, okay, yeah, you can get a hold of me anytime via text or phone call. And all I do is email him. And I talk to my clients and say, I don't know why we're not hearing from Reed. He's not responding to the 30 emails I've sent today. Um, when it's just a, a mix up of communication techniques. And that's something that that I always tell new agents is, hey, Regardless of who you're working with, try it and match what they're most comfortable with, and you'll usually have the best outcomes. So before we wrap up, Reed, we have the same final questions we like to, we like to ask every single guest. Are you ready for them? I'm ready. So the first question is, what is your favorite real estate or business-related book? Oh, well, um, I really enjoyed reading the, uh, the One Thing from Gary Keller. I thought that was it's good for, you know, once you have got everything going, um, what, what is your income producing activities and kind of narrowing those down to where, Hey, this is what is bringing in the business. This is what I need to focus on. So, uh, I really enjoyed the one thing. I thought it was a good book. Uh, I love millionaire real estate and uh, rich dad, poor dad are great books just for kind of mindset and how to be financially successful, but as far as real estate and kind of really focusing in on uh, what drives success and all that, I, I thought the one thing was a good book for that. That's a powerful one, man. I think if if anyone has not read that yet, that should be the top of their reading list for books to read. The One Thing by Gary Keller, Millionaire Real Estate Agent. Um, those are two of, at least in my career, some of the most impactful books. And if you're into commercial, Shift Commercial is another one that is, I mean, the knowledge bombs in there. It's, I think I've reread each of those books at least five times. This is so, so useful. Um, second question, Reed, what advice would you give a new real estate agent to help them build their business and have a lasting and successful career? Well, uh, the build your business one, I actually, I, I do uh, some work with an Ignite group down here in San Antonio. And one of the things that was always really interesting uh, was just how do I, you know, kind of break the ice, get started. 
what do I do? And one that I thought that was really cool, uh, an agent suggested to the class he was teaching is uh, post something on Facebook, especially if you're getting started in all this and treat it almost like it's a homework assignment and say, hey, I was given a homework assignment or, you know, hey, I was uh, tasked, you know, to do some practice on doing CMAs for a house. So uh, would anybody be willing to let me practice on their home? The benefit you get out of it is you get a free assessment on your home. And for me, I get some practice. So word that however you want. But what was really cool about it is generally out of everyone who posted, they would get, you know, three or four people who would say, yeah, you know, friends, family uh, that would say, yeah, you know what, I've got a house. Take a look at it. Give me, give me your thoughts on it because why not? Doesn't cost me anything. All you're giving me that. It's not a, hey, I want to sell your house. It's a, hey, I'm just, you know, practicing, trying to get better at my craft. And a similar thing that I did one time way back was, hey, you know, if anybody's looking at just what, what could you buy and posted. And I had three or four people who ended up going down the road and we actually bought something. So that one, I think, is a really easy way just to break the ice and, uh, you know, get people to respond. And what I would tell um, what I would tell you is kind of the same thing as the open house list is when you go to an open house and you put out that, hey, give me your name, phone number and email. Nobody wants to be the first person on the list. If they show up and that list is completely blank, they're going, oh. You know, excuse my French, but crap, this person's going to call me, you know, 10, 20 times trying to get me to do something. And really, I was just poking my head in here to take a look at the place as I drove by. So, uh, you know, when you do something like this, call your friends and family and say, hey, would you mind just, you know, mom, dad, hey, would you mind sticking uh, your address on here so that people feel a little bit more comfortable sharing that? Hey, I know my neighbor down the street is my friend. Would you do that? And it, one, gets you some activity, especially Facebook loves activity when you're commenting on things. Uh, so it'll help boost the post a little bit, but it also gets people a little bit more comfortable to share with it and uh, be willing to give you their information. And you never know what comes from that. So as far as getting started, I would say something like that, just to one, build awareness that, hey, by the way, I'm an agent. is always a good deal. Um, and you know, just how to keep the business going is, the people that you're working with, take care of them and they're going to take care of you. Uh, everybody has at least two parents. They maybe have a sibling. They probably had some grandparents at one point or another. Uh, they may have kids. They probably have friends. They probably have coworkers. And what some studies found is that on average, everyone's sphere of influence has got like 10, 20 people. So of those 10, 20 people, at some point, they're going to do something real estate related. And then that person has probably got 10, 20 more people. So, you know, you take care of that one person, turn them into a raving fan, and they're going to be able to help do the work for you. And if that involves, like I said, I call my past clients twice a year. That's really not a large investment from me, but it turns out that, you know, just that checking in and, hey, how are you doing? How's the house going? You still loving it? Are you surviving the freeze right now for those of us in Texas, for the people I'm talking to this week? Uh, it, it just, it's nice to get to call those people. It builds that relationship and they think of you because especially in that first time people are in the house, they're going to hear conversations. It's the buying a new car thing. You buy a, you buy a new Toyota 4Runner, you start driving down the road and suddenly that's the only car you see on the road for some reason, but it happens. You're at work, you're, you know, thinking about, Hey, I'm in the process of buying a house or selling a house. And you hear somebody else saying, yeah, you know, we're thinking about buying or selling the old place and retiring you go, that person is going to think of you and go, oh, hey, we're actually doing the same thing. And I work with Matt and he's awesome. So 
that would be uh, what I would say is just once you've got people who are working with you, take good care of them and they're going to take good care of you. Um, that's it's a referral based business and that's how you build your business. Couldn't agree more, Reed. I think that's one of the most important things that gets overlooked is is when agents are first starting out. A lot of them are hungry because they're not getting a paycheck for if they're lucky 90 days and they they have this this bad mindset because of the situation they're in that it's a transactional business and if you're focusing on the transactions and not their relationships you're not going to last very long in the business so that's why i personally always recommend having a nest egg saved up so hey i can live off of these savings for the next six to 12 months and just focus on really building solid relationships with everyone in my sphere of influence and making sure that i'm the first name that these people are thinking of when they think anything real estate and like you said um, having those people in your sphere of influence being your biggest cheerleaders and raving about you is what leads to more deals. Like every agent has those clients that they're like, oh yeah, I, I mean, I worked with this one client and just from them, they've sent me like 12 referrals of their cousins, siblings, nephews, nieces that have closed as deals. And now those families and friends are sending their own referrals. And it's, it's wild. Like you, you talk to someone who's been in the business for 35 years and they literally do not have time to prospect anymore because they're so busy taking care of those relationships and treating and serving those people that have been sent to them as referrals. And as an agent, at least in, in my opinion, um, you almost feel like those people are family. And so you, you treat them very delicately and that's how you should treat all your clients. So when someone sends you their, their child to be your client, to help them get into a home, that's how you should treat all of your clients. Like, like there's someone who's very important to you and that you, that you, you want to make sure nothing goes wrong in that transaction. And that's, what's going to lead to more of those referrals that keep your business going. So Reed, our third question is what are your goals for the next 12 months? Yeah. And, you know, what an honor when that kind of thing happens, when they think of you and call you and say, hey, it's my kid, it's my family, it's my friend. That's awesome. So, you know, don't forget when that happens. It's not just to say, oh, yeah, you know, Marcy's such a wonderful lady. Now, how can I help you? We're calling Marcy and we're saying, Marcy, thank you so much for thinking of me. You know, you were awesome to work with. I appreciate so much that you kept me in mind and, you know, i uh, are thinking of me enough to be able to share that with other people. You know, as you know, Marcy, this is how I earn my living is helping people. So I really appreciate that so much. And that, that gratitude, that's, you know, reinforcing it with those people. But, uh, you know, it's, it's appreciating that relationship. If they're willing to think of you, um, jokingly, an agent told me one time, they can tell me 3% of any number anybody who's buying a house or selling a house, it's, you know, typically 3%. Well, at the average price, I, I don't know what it is for Lubbock. I imagine it's probably similar about 250. That person is referring you $7,500. So, you know, if you had a family member who called you up and said, Hey, in a month or two, I'd like you to have $7,500 that I'm going to give you. And it's going to take a little bit of work, you know, but I want you to have this. Are you going to call them and say, oh my gosh, you know, thank you so much. Of course you are. So treat those people the same way and, uh, you know, show that appreciation, that gratitude, and it's going to pay off huge for you. Uh, They're helping as, to feed your family. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah, staying warm right now. <laughs> well, uh, as far as my goals for the next 12 months, uh, one of the things that uh, 
really kind of working on is that daily success plan, making sure that I commit to it, do the activities that I know are going to help me grow. That's part of that one thing is what was the one thing that I uh, know is going to help me become bigger and better and more successful at this uh, and what's going to help me continue to build a team and provide for those people. That's uh, one of the cool pieces is once you guys really get this business going, you start bringing people in. It's maybe a buyer's agent, a transaction coordinator. Well, now you're helping take care of their family and you're helping build their future. And that's a cool deal. So uh, my goal is to hit uh, at least 30 million this year. And we're having a pretty cool year so far. Uh, one of my first people who's closing in a couple of days is actually a YouTube uh, star. So uh, he's our first one for February that's going to close. So we're really excited to be working with him and learning some stuff from him on just how to market a little bit more because he's uh, built a YouTube career and everything, which is amazing. So uh, never stop learning. Always be interested in hearing on things that are helping us grow, get better, reading the books, talking to people. And everyone I've talked to has kind of had this daily success plan and said, here's what works. So I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm trying to master the wheel and just get better and better at my craft as I'm doing it, help more people and then grow my team and be able to keep churning that, making that number be bigger and bigger. I get those are, those are good goals. That's, those are noble goals too. I like the fact that you're, you're helping build the team and, and put food on those people's tables and, and help them provide for their families and, and people they care about. And it sounds like you have a solid foundation for accomplishing those goals. So for those of us who might have business in San Antonio and could help you accomplish your goals, uh, or for anyone who's just wanting to get in touch with you and, and pick your brain or, or share something that they have, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you can reach me either on my cell phone. It's 210-367-5465. That's definitely the best way. If you want to shoot me a text or give me a call, be happy to you know, talk to you about what I do. Um, be happy to help you out in any way that I can. And then for email, if you want to go that route, uh, it's read, or I'm sorry, it's R Aiken. So R-A-I-T-K-E-N at Annie-Mac.com. Perfect. Well, we will be sure to add all that in the show notes as well and link to your socials. That way people can connect with you on there and um, hopefully connect with you in the future and be sure to check in on what Reed's doing because he's doing a lot of good stuff in San Antonio and We'd love to, to have you back on here again soon and, and check in and see how those goals go. But as always, we're very grateful to have you on the episode. And until next time, thank you guys. Thank you, Reed. Thanks, Matt.